You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. Hello, this is Greg Stokes with Lanyap Podcast. We're here today with Brian Portnoy. Brian is the founder of of Shaping Wealth, a financial wellness company which works with advisors, companies, and families on making better financial decisions. In his two best-selling books, The Geometry of Wealth and The Investor's Paradox, Brian sets out actionable insights for aligning purpose with planning. He has served as a keynote speaker, seminar leader, and coached to thousands of investors on topics ranging from portfolio strategy to investment selection to the connection between money and happiness. For the past two decades, Brian held senior investment and educational roles throughout the hedge fund and mutual fund industries. He is active in the field of youth financial literacy and is on the advisory board of the Alliance for Decision Education. Brian is a CFA charter holder, holds an undergrad degree from the University of Michigan, and earned his doctorate from the University of Chicago. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. In The Geometry of Wealth, you talk about how people are likely to know more about the state of a friend's marital issues than the friend's salary and how much money they have saved up for retirement. Can you explain why money is such a complicated subject and why people are so discouraged from talking about it amongst themselves? Yeah, it's an important question and an important topic. You know, the short answer is that money is an emotional lightning rod for all of the important things in our life. Fear, greed, envy, hope, joy, you name it, money touches on these things. So it's a very emotionally vulnerable topic to discuss. It's easy to go back to what we learned in high school or middle school. Hey, what is money? It's a store of value. It's a medium of exchange. It's a unit of account. And those incredibly narrow definitions of what is money don't begin to touch on the human and social phenomenon that money is. The American Psychological Association does surveys every year as sources of stress in people's lives, what people don't want to talk about, and consistently every single year, money tops the list. Families, marriage, divorce, politics, religion, you name it, money dwarfs all of them as just the most uncomfortable thing to get into. Is that a recent phenomenon? The reason I ask that is you talk about financial insecurity and how insecurity has been on the rise since really the decline of defined benefit pension plans that basically you work for a, a company, the company pays you a salary and then also basically guarantees your retirement income for life. That went away for the most part in the 80s and 90s. And now it's incumbent upon people, normal people to invest for themselves so that they can retire and then spend their retirement savings over their lifetime. So is that insecurity around discussing money aligned with just general financial insecurity? And is it a recent phenomenon? You know, it's hard to quantify. It's hard to say that things are getting much worse. But we could say that it's probably never been harder to think about these issues. You know, the topic that you referred to in terms of the general shift in our lives across kind of corporate America, industrial America, from defined benefit to defined contribution, meaning pensions to 401ks. You know, there's something fantastic about that because who doesn't love choice, freedom, liberty? Like, oh, okay, now someone's not going to control it for you. You have control. 
The problem is, and we know this from just a, an avalanche of, of research from social psychology, is that there's a tipping point in how many choices somebody actually really wants. And so among the many other challenges in navigating money life currently, the fact that we have so much freedom in planning our own finances combined with so many choices. You know, you think about mutual fund companies and, and other investment firms that have now given us tens of thousands of choices. So unlimited freedom, unlimited choice creates a general form of paralysis when it comes to making better decisions. I think that's fascinating. I think the other thing that relative to history from a overall contentment that people have related to money, I read in your book that with the onset of technological changes like social media and our ability to rel to look at ourselves relative to our peers, that's also been something that's been detrimental to people's overall contentment related to money. Can you expand upon that? Yeah. So, I mean, we can go in the way back machine in terms of evolutionary psychology and talk about the fact that part of what it means to be human is to think about and to care about status. There's sort of no getting around that. I mean, there's sort of tip of the spear issues in terms of, oh, my neighbor got that nicer boat, that nicer car. Huh, I wish I had that. But there's something much deeper going on in terms of what we do is compare ourselves to each other. It's not a nice to have. It's, it's a must have. It's actually a genetic condition of who we are as a species, which is that we belong to a group. We're tribal, small T tribal, not the capital T political tribal, it's a different conversation. Small T tribal, we're just, we're not only connected to others, we, we need to have that sense of belonging. It brings meaning, it brings uh, security and stability into our lives. And so there's no getting around that. One of the consequences, and I guess you could say it's a, a negative consequence, is that we're always comparing ourselves to others it wasn't until that long ago we had relatively limited ability to make those comparisons. So once the genie was let out of the bottle from a social media perspective, and now everybody can see what everybody's doing, there's the opportunity, if you're not grounded and principled, to really you know get disturbed. There's a quote I love from J.P. Morgan, the original John Pierpont Morgan from whatever it was 100 years ago where he said, nothing corrupts your financial judgment more than the sight of your neighbor getting rich. And now, you know, it wasn't that long ago that your neighbor was the guy across the street. Now your neighbor is every person on Facebook and TikTok and Snap and LinkedIn and Twitter. Everybody is everybody's neighbor and we're going a little bit bonkers with it. Yeah, I'm actually interested and I don't know if there's any research on this at all, but this is really affecting sort of millennial and Gen Z in terms of the social status component, how that will ultimately affect them once they reach the investor age and then ultimately retirement age, that this is like this, this constant barrage from social media of status and wanting to keep up. And the superficiality, I guess you can call it, of all of that. that basically, you, you could be in a situation where you're, you're seeing somebody on Instagram or Facebook that is posting something that could be completely farce, too. That's that's not real. Um, yeah. And it's not real life. And it's just I want the consequence of that from a financial perspective for these these generations that have grown up in the social media age. It'd be interesting to see the, how how that ultimately will work out. So, Doug, you're telling me there's stuff on the Internet that's not true. 
<laughs> right, I know. Well, it's and it, you see all these videos of these uh, these like Bitcoin and crypto people that are like renting Lamborghinis or like taking pictures from inside a private jet, but they've like rent it's sitting on the runway. That's right. Right. I think it's it's so funny. What is the consequence of this for people that are just trying to live their lives that are tempted by social pressures and to keep up with the crowd, but the crowd is a complete completely fake. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. A mirage. Let me try to articulate two distinct dynamics that are underlying this part of the conversation, because, you know, I, I do a fair amount of work in coaching financial advisors and their clients. And we find that in a multi-generational family context, conversations about money are really hard. So when you think about grandparents, adult children, and the grandkids, you know, as kind of a standard scenario. We already established, right, that money's like super hard. Like you know that your best friend has a health issue or they're struggling in their marriage, but you don't have the first clue what they make for a living or what their balance sheet looks like. All right. So we've kind of set that up. Now let's make it even messier by introducing family dynamics and, you know, I don't think it's a bold claim to say that fa families struggle to communicate about lots of things. There's two underlying dynamics that we should separate. And I think it elevates the conversations we could at least potentially have about money. One is life cycle and the other is generational culture. Now, one of the reasons why 25-year-olds feel the way they do about things, it's because they're 25 years old. I've got three teenagers and I see their attitude toward things. And, you know, so they're they're Gen Z. Yes, but they're also just teenagers. And, you know, down the road, they'll graduate from I hope they'll graduate from college and get a job and earn a living and get married and, you know, live uh, hopefully that normal good life that we want for our, our our loved ones. But the fact is, when my kids are in their 30s and 40s and 50s, they're just going to be in a different part of the life cycle and the risks that they want to take are going to change and the decisions that they need to make. I mean, so I'm in my early 50s and I'm in a classic sandwich situation. I've got three teenage kids and I've got aging parents, as does Tracy, my wife, and some of our parents need our help. It's just that time of life. Like, that's the way it goes. I mean, we could say it's neither good nor bad. I think it's good because it's an opportunity to help. But still, so one issue is the life cycle, just what decisions are afoot. And then the second matter, I think, is actually more complicated, which is generational culture. Like, can we generally claim that Gen X, Millennial, and Gen Z, let alone boomers, are different from each other? And you know, there's a lot of generalizations about millennials. It's a cohort of what, 75 or 80 million people. It's pretty hard to generalize about 80 million people all at once. So when we say things like, oh, those millennials are like this, I always get a little bit skeptical because I think we need to click for detail. There's lots of segments within the millennial population, just like Gen Z. I, what letter comes after Gen Z? I don't know, is it double A? But whatever, whatever comes after that, we do have things like technology, communication technology, social media, where we can argue, okay, well, maybe Gen Z has a different perspective on money and status and things like that because of the situational environment they find themselves in. It's hard at any moment in time to say, well, they're in this quote unquote different generation and they're 23 years old. 
So which part is speaking and how much do those map to each other? How much are those in tension? Right. Yeah, I agree. I think ultimately there's a grow up phase where, like you said, you just have this life cycle components and some people don't get out of that. And hopefully most people do and move on to you know a different phase of life. I mean, Greg and I are, are millennials, uh, but we also have each have three kids at this mm-hmm. point. And so we're not we're in a different phase of life than maybe a, another millennial that's that's 10 years younger than us. I'd love to get your thoughts on this because I think that this is an there's two different ways that we think about goals. And so I want to get your thoughts on the importance of goal setting. And we're big proponents of a concept that Patrick O'Shaughnessy has written about. And the concept is essentially growth without goals or continuous goal setting. It's really just a lifestyle of discipline in which you do things on a daily basis or a weekly basis or a monthly basis that may not be in service of a longer term goal. But knowing that if you do these things, you'll grow as a person or you'll grow your your balance sheet. So maybe just talk about the concept of the importance of goal setting. And then I'd love to get your thoughts on just daily or weekly or monthly disciplined progress. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to try to be succinct. I've done multi hour workshops on the psychology of goals. It's pretty darn complicated. Let me just plant a few flags and let's see where we get. And Patrick's a super smart guy. And the writing that he did on growth without goals is fabulous. Let me come to that maybe second. So the first thing to say about goals is that they're a good thing. And they're a good thing because to have a motivation, to have a drive is a generally healthy thing. If you live without goals, if there's nothing you're working toward, we tend to find ourselves not feeling very positive about things. We feel somewhat empty. We are, as a species, motivated to move forward. We do want to grow. We have a growth instinct, you know, tying back to something we said a few minutes ago, we want to grow and we want to make progress in two regards. We want to be better than the way we used to be as an individual and better is in, in quotes, like it, that's, that's subject to definition, but we want to be better or have more than we used to. And we want to be better and have more versus others. And that's that status issue that I talked about. So having goals as a foundational part of a healthy lifestyle is super important. There's the flip side to goals though. And in our industry where we have this massive complex of ideas called goals-based wealth management, I don't think we and the families that we tend to fully appreciate that goals aren't entirely positive or at least aren't understood in the way that they could be. And I'll I'll give you one example and then we'll move to growth without goals. So there's something in our psyche that psychologists refer to as hedonic adaptation, which is a lot of syllables for this idea that we all become used to just about everything in our lives, both good and bad. And so let's take the most standard goal in all the financial planning, retirement. So much of what we do is talk about, okay, I want to get to age 60 or 62 or 65. And at that point, I want to cool my heels. And hopefully I have enough money that it can fund, you know, that there's cash flow to fund the lifestyle that I want. Okay, well, that's good at at a certain level. At another level, though, what we're doing, what one is doing is making a series, a string of predictions about what our emotional state is going to be when we get to that stage of our lives where we can retire. 
And so something I see with increasing frequency, and this is situational to where we are now in terms of medical technology, we're living much, much longer. The longevity phenomenon is a really big issue when it comes to money life because maybe, you know, we tended to pass at 75, 80, 85. Now, 85, 90, 100 is not at all abnormal. And as an asterisk, people with more money tend to live longer because they can choose to have healthier lifestyles. Hedonic adaptation is that moment where a couple at age 63 has done everything right, and they meet with their financial planner, and the planner says, you did it. You ran through the finish line. You're all set. You know, you've saved well, you've invested well, you've borrowed wisely, and now you can do all the things that we've been talking about for all these years. Increasingly, you know what people say? What's next? Okay, good. I'm glad that I made it. And so what goals do from a negative perspective is that they tee us up for emotional disappointment because no matter how good or frankly how bad a particular outcome is, we tend to revert to type and then we say what's next because we are foundationally growth-oriented creatures and wherever we get, we want to get further. My Second favorite show, Mad Men, for show uh, favorite is Breaking Bad. But my favorite character for my second favorite show, Don Draper in Mad Men, said that happiness is that feeling that you have right before you want more happiness. And that captures the hedonic treadmill. On the issue of growth without goals, let me just say briefly that Patrick's idea is brilliant. And it taps into broader thinking that we can think about not so much goal achievement, but adaptation and optionality, meaning that we don't know what life is going to bring. But if we have a growth mindset, a positive mindset, if we take control, accept agency over what we have and appreciate what we can't control, then we can enter our day-to-day life and big picture decisions with the attitude of, okay, I hope I've made a good choice, but we'll see. And wherever I end up, I'm going to adapt to the next thing. Growth without goals is powerful in that regard because it just means tending to yourself every day in a thoughtful and kind way. And we're not always kind to ourselves. So treating ourselves with you know an extra level of kindness and appreciating that things don't always work out. And a lot of the time, it's not our fault, but we can respond and be better that's an awesome moment for people if they give themselves permission to go there. Yeah, I would say that the two are, are not mutually exclusive either. It seems like a, a goal is either a finish line or a checkpoint, but you have to, in order to reach that objective, you have to do certain things along the way, which is that continuous improvement mindset that he writes about there. Right, mm-hmm. because the finish line is always never enough, basically. So to have yeah. that approach where, right, that what, the hedonistic treadmill is what you said. Yeah, yeah, hedonic treadmill, and yeah, the, 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 yeah, yeah, the finish line is actually a gateway. You know, you 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 get there, and you're not done. You might remember some of your listeners might remember kind of classic Greek myth, the myth of Sisyphus, where you know he did bad things, and the the gods punished him, and for all of eternity he had to push a rock up to the top of the mountain, and right when he crested, the rock falls back down to the bottom of the hill, and he has to do it over again for eternity. It sounds pretty miserable. The story is actually inspiring to me because what you get with every time the rock falls down is an opportunity to try to put effort into something, to be motivated, to be a little bit better. And that's a choice that everybody can make in their own life. And I think it's kind of awesome. 
Right. And you see these instances where people don't have goals and are like, for example, if somebody receives a large windfall and there's not any sort of purpose in life, those are situations where you see that people go south. If there's not any sort of objectives other than just lifestyle. And I read a passage in your book in in that regards where people, if they win the lottery or something like that, they have a spike in overall contentment immediately, but then they typically revert back to their normal status quo. That's right. Yeah, there's been plenty of studies of that. And, you know, look, this is the it's hedonic adaptation, sometimes referred to as the hedonic treadmill. No matter how fast you sprint on a treadmill, you don't really get any further. So, you know, appreciate that that is happening to you. Also appreciate that it happens to everybody else. You mentioned an important word, which is purpose. And, you know, I think one of the challenges with goals-based thinking, and, you know, look, we've stipulated that goals are important, but one of the challenges of goals is that what sits behind it is a, a sort of an antecedent or a precursor is purpose. So, so goals like retirement, like that second, like the vacation home, like, you know, standard financial planning goals, those are often scripts that we've received, but not question. So we're just kind of living through what we think we're supposed to do. And so we have all these landmark goals and we write them down on a piece of paper or we put them into financial planning software. And that's totally fine. The achievement of those goals we've established is not going to produce anything particularly beneficial from a psychological point of view. What is really going to help is going one really big step backwards in the chain of events and saying, well, what brings meaning to my life? What are the things that are really important to me? And in that context, you can then be, I think, savvier and more mature about forming the goals that are truly important to you, but absent what I call purpose-based wealth management or purpose-based financial planning, it's really hard to have a great experience with focusing only on goals. Understood. So what can people do to, like we've talked about the importance of goals and then the drawback of actually achieving those goals from that, that doesn't really produce contentment, but, and you touch on this in the geometry of wealth, what can people do to, as it relates to spending for their overall contentment? Mm -hmm. Can you describe things that might not produce happiness when that people normally would think that spending on something would produce happiness? And what can we do from an overall management of our psychology in the short term as it relates to spending? Yeah. Let's come back to the spending question because that's a little bit of a separate issue. So the broad answer that I would give is for anyone thinking about leading a truly meaningful life is I think what anyone can do to figure out where money fits into a meaningful life and have those goals be more emotionally resonant is to think about purpose, is to think about meaning. You know, you guys read the book and I've been writing and speaking about this for for many years. I coined this phrase, funded contentment. It's this idea that there's a difference between being rich, which is the quest for more, which gets us right onto that treadmill, versus being wealthy which is the ability to underwrite a life that is meaningful to you. And that's a deliberately loaded sentence. But what is a meaningful life? What does it mean to underwrite that life? But let's start with the back half of the sentence. And well, what is a meaningful life? Now, to some people, this might sound a little bit woo-woo or, or psychobabble-ish, but I'm telling you, like, I think this is the right way to think about money and spending and budgeting and investing. Those happen to be down the road. 
but let's start in the right place and ask, what is the life that I want to lead? And by the way, this isn't written like in stone tablets. You don't, you don't need to figure it out once at age 24 or 32 or whatever, and then you're set. You have the opportunity to rewrite your story. Our stories are written in pencil, not pen. And as I've written about it and the research that I've done, the coaching and lecturing that I do, there's four sources of contentment. There's connection, control, competence, and context. I call them the four C's. And in a line, what's really meaningful to us is that sense of belonging that we've already talked about. Two, a sense of control or autonomy, liberty, freedom. Hey, I want to live the life that I want. So self-determination and self-definition. Three, competence. We want to be really good at something that's meaningful to us a job, a vocation, a hobby. We want to get into those flow states where like you look up after three hours and it's like, wait, what happened? And you were so engaged and it could be ceramics or guitar or financial planning or biochemistry. It doesn't matter, but you're so into it. And then the fourth is context. And that is a connection to something bigger than ourselves. Usually that's faith or place. So it's spirituality, religion, faith, or its place. It's our hometown pride. It's our patriotism. I've skimmed a very, very broad surface. But when we talk about those four C's, we have the opportunity now to step back and reflect. And maybe it's two minutes, maybe it's 20 minutes, maybe it's a full day walk in the woods. It doesn't matter. But we now have the chance to say, well, what's truly meaningful to me? How do I think about my social connections? How do I think about my job and my vocation? Where am I sourcing that positive energy? And where's the negative stuff landing with me. Okay. So that's a big exercise and it doesn't happen on one walk in the woods. It's just part of a reflective life in the context of funded contentment. We can then say, oh, okay, well, these are the things that are important to me now at this stage in my life. Can I afford them? What do they cost? How do I underwrite those things across all the dimensions of money life? So it's just not about having the right budget. It's just not about having the right portfolio, but you know, we talk about seven dimensions of money life earning, saving, spending, borrowing, giving, protecting, and investing. I mean, all of these are material components of our money life that we can plan more systematically. But all of those decisions are at the end of the process once we've done a little bit of the legwork to ask ourselves, look in the mirror and say, what's really important to me? From just an investor's perspective, and I think that in terms of decision making, going through the exercise of determining what you need to spend and what you need to live a fulfilled life in retirement, whether you're retired or at least economically independent of work, there's pitfalls along the way. And investor behavior is one of our prime jobs is helping people not make bad decisions Mm -hmm. with money and, and investment wise as well. From a behavioral standpoint, If you've made all the right decisions related to saving, related to spending, borrowing, giving, but then it comes to investing. Mm. And then we're experiencing this now with markets and heightened volatility, and there's a lot going on in the world. How do investors, if you're doing all the right things, how do you you shield yourself from negative impacts of emotion in the investment environment? The first thing we do is avoid pathologizing treating negatively, honest, raw emotion. If somebody is very, very wealthy and it doesn't make a hoot of difference that the market has declined 5 or 10 or 20%, but they're super anxious, 
there's a story to be told there. And, and we have to enter those conversations, not with the old school behavioral mindset of, oh, you're engaging in anchoring or recency bias or availability bias. I mean, that's not appropriate. That's not constructive. It's good to be able to say, hey, I hear you. Things are moving up and down. But hopefully, and this is what good financial planners do, hopefully there's a plan in place and that plan is reflective of values and purpose such that when you encounter this volatility, um, it's a nothing burger. Yes, there are paper losses and paper gains, but if the individual or the couple or the multi-generational family is grounded in an authentic plan, one that they've really bought into, and you can see the consequences of whatever market volatility is out there on sort of, you know, the number at the bottom of the page, hopefully most of the time, they won't even be thinking about it. You know, they might look up and say, oh, there's stuff going on. Oh, you know, rates are rising in a way that they haven't in 40 years. And we have an inflation regime that we haven't seen in a very long period of time and on and on and on. You guys know very well, you're in the thick of it every day. I, I used to be more on the investment side. Never a year goes by when there's not something to kind of freak out about. There's always something. Always. Yeah. You know, on Twitter, there's a meme and a T-shirt that I should get where there's a guy screaming, I'm worried about the current thing. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> there is always a current thing. And what I don't want to do is diminish someone's authentic response to what could be a scary situation, but good financial plans and good financial planners have had these conversations. You know, Good coaching relationships talk about scenarios and plays before the game has begun so that if you're on the field and it's fourth and 32, you're not like, oh, well, maybe we should do a you know, between the tackles run here. And let's hope that that gets us 33 yards. You, you kind of know that that's probably not what you should do. But hopefully the team has talked about it before the game has started. When we think about the transition of the financial advice business over the last half century, away from just buying and selling securities to just building portfolios to actual financial planning, and now, you know, broader concepts of coaching, this is where the really good stuff happens. NBA season's just about over, but I watch a lot of basketball because my, my sons watch it too. I was watching a random Lakers game. They're terrible, but I like watching LeBron. And it was a timeout. And the coach said to LeBron James, I need you to get back on defense. I need you to move without the ball. Do we believe that LeBron James doesn't know that he should get back on defense? The very best athletes in the world, you know, the Tom Brady's or the LeBron James or whomever, like they have coaches and they have coaches for a reason, which is that they need the foundations and the fundamentals to be reinforced. And also generally in life, we want to fix our roofs when the sun is shining. When it starts storming and the roof is broken and we haven't tended to it beforehand, we got a real plot problem on our hands. So I'm mixing metaphors now between sports and weather, but the point stands. Yeah. And we know all about that living in New Orleans uh, in terms of fixing roofs and bad weather. Yeah. But, okay. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So we're coming up on 30 minutes and just want to say thank you, Brian, for doing this and, and speaking with us today. These podcasts have been so market specific and talking about current events. And it's just a, it's refreshing to take a step back and just talk about investor psychology and just general, 
you know, good practices that people can do in order to improve their outcomes long term and, and then make life more meaningful. And so I want to say thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.